Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello, thanks for downloading another Pediapod. This episode, along with a few more to come, involves a conversation with a senior investigator who's had a large and lasting impact in the world of paediatric research. The early career investigator episodes will still be coming once a month, but this stream of episodes will hopefully add a bit of variety to the Pediapod feed and shine a light on some of the pioneers who've helped shape the face of modern paediatrics. In this episode, I speak to Max Vento. My name is Max Vento. I am a neonatologist based in Valencia, in Spain. I work in the University Hospital La Fe. I am the director of the neonatal research group that works in the Health Research Institute in the same hospital. We are a group that is formed with people coming from different backgrounds. So all together, we have a complex multidisciplinary group that are devoted to research, especially in the field of fetal to neonatal transition. Well, you sound like a busy man, so I appreciate you (laughs) giving us your time to come on the podcast. Why don't you start then by taking us back and telling us a little bit about how you got to be where you are today? Well, I like biology since I was very, very young. And my doubt has been always to go into biology or into medicine. My father was anesthesiologist and my mother was a pediatrician. And they had interesting conversations at the dinner table about the difficult cases they have experienced in their working days. So finally, I decided to go into medical school. When I was finishing my medical studies, I went to do my practice into pediatrics. And then I met Professor Manuel Moya, and he introduced me both into experimental research and into clinical research, and especially in the field of neonatology. I developed a rat model with him that was about the influence of calcium in rat offsprings that had been submitted to different experimental conditions. And this experiment constituted the backbone of my PhD degree. Was that a real turning point for you then, a real um, sort of light bulb moment that maybe a future of research lay ahead of you? Yeah, because I am talking about years 1972 to 74, approximately. Research done by doctors, experimental research done by doctors in Spain was very seldom done. So most of the doctors were devoted to do clinical trials and to try new drugs and things like that. But to go into the lab, and have an animal model. And in my case, I put forward the use of a new method of determination of minerals. It was atomic absorption spectrometry, which was for the first time used in our hospital. It all gave me the sensation 
that I had finally been able to combine my old dreams of being a biologist with my new dreams of being a doctor. And this was a great pleasure for me and a, a source of a very nice intellectual experiences. That's wonderful. You managed to combine the medicine and the research in one pursuit. Where did you go from there? Yeah, well, I pursued different uh, research questions and I was lucky to meet Professor Ola Dietrich Saugstad. He worked at the University of Oslo and he was the feature lecturer at the National Congress and he spoke about free radical disease of the newborn infants. I had done some experiments with Professor Vigna studying the fetal to neonatal transition and how this affected oxidative stress metabolism. Was that lecture really the birth of our understanding of hyperoxia? Yeah, I think that what Professor Sachstadt did is to combine findings from different conditions that happened in the brain, in the lung or other organs under a common and unifying theory. The unifying theory was the free radical disease of the newborn. And since I had been working in the lab and I had been experimenting with markers of oxidative stress, I understood perfectly what he meant. And then from then on, we translated our findings into the practical world and we started to do a clinical trials. What we saw is that when a tissue was subjected to hypoxia, as happens, for example, in asphyxiated babies, you accumulate substances that derive from ATP, the molecule that gives us the energy. When you don't receive oxygen, then you degrade ATP to basic substances that are called the santines, especially hyposantine. The peculiarity of this substance is that when you reoxygenate during resuscitation and give a burst of oxygen to this tissue, this tissue is going to generate a burst of oxygen-free radicals that are going to expand the initial lesion and make the damage that was caused initially expanded and increased by the action of supplemental oxygen. So then did it become clear to you that pure oxygen was maybe more dangerous than it was helpful? Well, these studies were done mainly by Dr. Saustad in his newborn piglet model and also in rat models what he saw is that using lower concentrations of oxygen upon resuscitation of these asphyxiated animals reduced the damage and allowed them to recover. So what we did is we organized a meeting in Valencia with different people coming from different countries and we launched several trials that went from the first trial planned by Dr. Saugstad in 1993 in India that was a feasibility trial, and then he performed what was called the Reserve 1 trial. Both these trials, what they showed is that it was feasible to resuscitate babies in the delivery room with room air. And then he launched a multicenter trial in which we participated, and this was called the Reserve 2 trial. This study, there was an increased number of babies, and they showed again that not only it was feasible to resuscitate with air, but we got the babies recovered earlier, started to breathe earlier, to cry earlier, and there were good clinical results. There were some problems with the experimental design. For example, it wasn't blinded. Second, it didn't have a biochemical background. It was just a clinical study. So what I did is that I performed three or four randomized clinical trials 
in which I blinded the oxygen source for the people resuscitated in the delivery room. So for the first time in neonatology, we had a blinded trial in the delivery room. The second thing I did is that I took blood before and after resuscitation and analyzed different oxidative stress markers and I proved that resuscitation with high oxygen content caused an intense and very damaging oxidative stress that expanded the initial lesions to more severe lesions. So we were causing more damage, amplifying the damage during the resuscitation. We included a follow-up, a biochemical follow-up in these babies that showed that sometimes oxidative stress did not finish after the intervention, but it could get prolonged in time, having other consequences such as prolonged inflammation and genetic alterations. What were the long-lasting impacts of that research? When we did a meta-analysis in 2008, the result was highly significant in favor of room air. So room air resuscitated babies died less and there was a tendency to reduce brain damage in these babies. This was a striking finding that convinced the International Liaison Committee on Resuscitation in 2010 for the first time to write a paragraph in which it says it was feasible and also advisable to use room air as the first option to resuscitate asphyctic babies. And in case that room air was not enough, then the oxygen blender should be increased to provide enough oxygen to stabilize these babies. Can you explain how that ended up being beneficial for doctors in lower and middle income countries? Well, imagine that uh, until then, Babies born in low-middle-income countries, many of them in the rural areas, in small villages, where oxygen was not present, where they didn't have any access to oxygen. So if they didn't start breeding immediately after birth, they were considered stillbirths and they were abandoned to die. With our findings, when they were incorporated by neonatologists all over the world, especially non-governmental organizations such as Medicines and Frontiers or Helping Babies Breathe started to employ very basic positive pressure and resuscitation devices. They could resuscitate a baby, at least try to enhance respiration in these babies in any place without having the need of having an oxygen bottle and all the devices that are needed to provide oxygen. So we published recently a paper with Dr. Wally Carlo from Birmingham, Alabama, in which it was shown that hundreds of thousands of babies are being saved every year because they are able to be resuscitated with room air. And I think that Dr. Saugstad deserves credit for it. And you must feel some sense of pride to have been a part of that. Well, yeah, I am very, very proud and very happy about it. But as we always say in science, science is characterized by disbelief. So we always think that there is something that we can do even better. Well, in terms of improving things, I mean, what do you see as some of the big issues confronting neonatology today and, you know, in the future? Geoff, you mentioned something important, the question regarding low-middle income countries. Yeah, yeah. If you review the most important journals in neonatology or in any type of medicine, but I, I am centering my intervention in neonatology, there are highly sophisticated interventions 
in highly sophisticated settings with very experienced groups and what I call the chain of interventions which starts in the control of pregnancy, the attendance to delivery, the resuscitation and post-resuscitation, everything is perfect in the chain. However, if you apply something that you have discovered, a new protocol in a low-middle-income country, the chain is not completely developed. You may have a lot of women who haven't had good control of their pregnancy. Perhaps the delivery room doesn't have the means of resuscitating or the hospital doesn't have the monitoring systems, etc. So we should design our studies in close cooperation with obstetricians, nurses and neonatologists from these countries. And our studies should take into consideration the reality of these countries. And then we could do the correct interventions to save the lives of more than 130 million of babies that are born in these countries compared to 10 or 15 that are born in our countries. Yeah, I mean, the basic science is the same all over the world, but the applicability of these findings in different contexts requires input from those contexts. Exactly, yeah. And is that happening? Uh, is that something people are talking about? Well, there is an example. When you compare our trials that Dr. Saustad initially performed in India, we had all this set up for the experiments, thinking of what the reality in India was at that time. Now, the ELIX trial has been recently published and they have used hypothermia. Hypothermia in level three hospitals in India. These hospitals were exactly the same as if they were in England. They had all the means of taking care of babies. They had neonatologists. All the setup in the NICU was similar. However, hypothermia in India caused more deaths than non-intervention, which didn't happen in any of the high-income countries. What was the problem? The problem was that these babies arrived to the hospital and many of them were already so sick that hypothermia was the second hit that could worsen their condition. So what we should do is when we are going to translate our findings or our new means of treating illnesses, we have to adapt our means to these countries. I think this would be very interesting and I think that is the future of global thinking regarding medicine. What lessons did you learn then? You know, in this position that you sit in between basic research and the clinic, what have you learned about how to do research and how to make it useful? The first thing is that I don't think that everybody has a mind for research. Like not everybody can be a good soccer player, you know. I mean, uh, to be a researcher, you have to have a great curiosity. You have to be making yourself questions every day. This is the real engine that moves uh, science. And the second point would be you need to look for a mentor or for someone in your surrounding or even in another country if you are able to visit and establish a professional relation with a strong group, with a good mentor and be able to start seriously to do research. Research in our days is extremely expensive even in my country, in Spain, which I consider in the top 20 countries in the world, research is more focused to the adult medicine. There is little money for neonates. You know, neonates are always have the problems that they represent a very small part of the society 
and they don't vote. So neonates are always abandoned. So you have to do an extra effort in order to have a link with a good research group. So these people can help you to design your projects, to get funding and to be successful. And then admit that if you are a doctor, you have to see patients and then you have to add additional time to reading papers, to writing papers, to do animal experiments. And this is very tough because it takes a lot of time of your private life, of the time with your family, the weekends, vacation, etc. And not everybody is ready to accept this situation. You mentioned mentors. It sounds like you've been very fortuitous when it comes to senior researchers who really steered you along along your early path. Are you sort of giving back? Are you are you mentoring yourself? And you know, what advice do you have for the next generation of pediatricians? Well, luckily, I have a very close contact with young researchers in my group, but also in groups of other countries. I think that young people now are much better prepared, at least in Spain, than we were in the 70s. But the paradigm has changed. When I started, I did everything myself. Now, in order to do high-tech research or to answer difficult questions, you need to have people with a multidisciplinary background in your group. So if you are a neonatologist, you have to be ready to be speaking with biologists, with analytical chemists, with bioinformatics that can look at your problem from different perspectives and all together design a project and give an answer to the problem. And I think that's the reality these days. And I think our young people are very much prepared and the people from my age, we are also ready to give them all our support because science cannot stop.